The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Every obstruction from my people's way, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, habits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him, with her, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Father, we read this passage in hope, in thankfulness and in hope. Thankfulness for the you, the high and holy one, speaks. You speak to us. You write down your word, your truth, that we can hear it and read it and know it. We're thankful for that and we we pray, we read in hope because it talks about, this passage talks about how it is that you are willing and how it is that you actually will dwell with people. The lowly and the contrite. The humble and the repentant. You actually tell us you will draw near. You will come to and be with such ones for a purpose to revive. We say thank, thank you and we, we in hope read that and we cry out to you, come and dwell with and revive. And we recognize that for that to happen, you must first make us contrite. So that's my prayer for this morning, Lord, that you will produce in us a hopeful and thankful contrition. That you will keep us back from the the depths of a despairing, morose contrition, and you will instead produce in us real contrition that is thankful and hopeful. That sees you as the high and holy one willing to come and dwell with us to revive. Lord, use your word towards that end this morning. Use your spirit towards that end. I want to pray that you would cause him to move through the room here and and arrest our attention to control our wayward hearts and minds, to help us to catch the important things and to plant them in our minds and in our our souls and to, to think about them and to believe. Spirit of God, would you do that work in our midst here? Would you clear away any sin that stands as a barrier not even hearing your word? Would you give me clarity and, and, and brevity and the words that are right? I pray you communicate your word to us and that you would build your church. And we would know a God who is near. We would know and experience your salvation and all of its blessings for our joy, for the strength and the growth of your church and for the honor of your name. Pray this in in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.
We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 3, which is the beginning of the second major section of this gospel. Chapters 1 and 2 are chapters of announcement and introduction as both the births of John the Baptist and Jesus are, are first foretold and then actually come about. They are presented to us, described. John's presented as one who would grow and become a prophet of the Most High, talking about God's salvation that was coming, preparing people for that. And then Jesus, we are told, is the one who would be that salvation. And then we saw Simeon, who takes baby Jesus in the temple and rejoices that he has beheld with his eyes the salvation of God. This, that's who Jesus is, the salvation of God. And he rejoices that God has finally moved and done what he long promised to do. This is the one, this Jesus here, good news, right in my hands here, the one who's going to reconnect us to God and restore the proper humanity. That was chapters 1 and 2, kind of introduction. And now, chapter 3, years have passed, and those two young boys have grown up, and they both are adult men now. And we might say that this orderly account of all that God has accomplished in Jesus, that's how Luke introduces the, the gospel, the story, you might say, begins in earnest now in chapter 3. Luke is now kind of turning the page and the main event begins. And it begins again with John preaching in the wilderness. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 today and we'll just deal with that kind of general and introductory. Next week we'll look at more of what John's ministry was like, more of what he has to say, what he does, how he interacts with the crowd. But we begin in verses 1 to 6 with the general lay of the land. I'm going to read the passage, pass back through it to clarify a couple of the details, make a couple of points from it, and then I'll draw two observations from this section. This is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke 3, 1 through 6. The details of verse 1 place us in a specific time and historical setting. By our reckoning, how we count time, the 15th year of Tiberius would be about 29 AD. So we've got a, a time on the calendar, and, and the historical facts we read around there are all proven from other places in history, the reign of these particular men in these particular places, all of which serves as kind of a reminder to us that we are reading history. Not myth. This isn't like religious writing. This is historical writing with an agenda, to be sure, 
like all history, no such thing as neutral history. Every, hist- every history writer has an agenda, has a goal, and Luke has a goal. He wants us to read this history and believe what it's about, like he believed after he investigated it and heard about it and saw it. He embraced it and he wants us to embrace it. So he clearly has an agenda, but everything in these verses, once again, we see is corroborated by outside history. Verse 2, the same, with this odd wrinkle of the singular priesthood of these two men. Seems like a contradiction. How can two men be the priest? Well, we know, again, from outside history that rulers often work this way, with one guy on his way out and one guy on his way in, and the old guy still wielding a lot of power, maybe the power behind the throne. You can even read in John 18 that that's exactly what was going on with these two guys. One was the older priest on his way out, but still was kind of the man. There were two guys operating as the priest in this time. Luke has again very carefully captured a subtle reality here. And likewise, John the Baptist was a real guy. We can read about John the Baptist in history outside of the Bible. Now, in the grand scheme of world history, he's not that important of a guy. So there's not a lot about him outside of, his, outside of the Bible. But there is, in non-Christian history, John, who was called the baptizer. You can read about how he caused trouble for Herod. Herod didn't like him for political reasons. He had a large following, says the history, of people who regarded him as a pious man who taught about righteousness and baptism. Sounds a lot like the Bible. This is fact, not myth. These people lived. These events happened in time and in space, in the real world. And one day, into time and space, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He's introduced to us like a prophet, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. He's a prophet sent from God, and he walked around the region of the Jordan proclaiming, or another way to translate that word could be preaching. He travels this region around both sides of the Jordan River, preaching, proclaiming, Something. He's talking about something and calling for response in regards to something, a baptism. Now, verses 7 and following, which we'll look at in following weeks, give us more of, of what he actually said and how he interacted with the crowds and what he preached and what he talked about coming. We'll, we'll get to that later next week and following. All we get right now is, is a short statement at the end of verse 3 about what he was doing and then Luke's explanatory note. This quote from Isaiah in verses 4, 5, and 6. Quotes from Isaiah 40, which you may recall is the same chapter that we discussed when talking about Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That also is in Isaiah chapter 40. And here Luke quotes from Isaiah 40 again. Something important going on in Isaiah 40. A great turning of God from a period of judgment to a period of salvation. And right here at this turn, John comes doing what Isaiah said was going to happen. A voice coming to announce and to prepare. To prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. The language in in these verses, 4, 5, and 6, captures the imagery of other writing in that day of preparing a way for a visiting dignitary or king or 
um, supposed divine figure, kind of grayed out the road. Often would be done physically, but even metaphorically, cutting down the high places, those who are lofty and exalted, and filling in the low places, those who are humble, to prepare people for the visit of this ruler, of this king, of this dignitary. So Isaiah captured this language, used it, to talk about the approach of the king, and our need, therefore, to repair and prepare a path for his approach. And that's the work of John, sent to do that for us. That's, that's as far as we're going today, just down through verse 6. I'm going to make two observations from this section. I'm going to summarize them here. Here's my main point, if you want to write this down. God prepares us with repentant hearts to enjoy his salvation. God prepares us with repentant hearts to enjoy his salvation. There's kind of two pieces to that. How he prepares us, that's the with repentant hearts part, and for what he prepares us to enjoy his salvation. And that second piece is going to come second, but you need to remember that that is coming second. Because, as I prayed at the beginning, we do not want to be, and we must not view all the discussion here about repentance. Even that, even that word sometimes kind of hits us. We can't view that in isolation from the second point and think, this is just about beating me up. No. It's preparing a people for something marvelous. The first part is how he prepares us. What kind of preparation is necessary for what? For the enjoyment of his salvation. Keep that in mind as we deal with the first point first. Here it is. God prepares us by calling for us to live lives of humble repentance. God prepares us. God prepares people, us, for what? I'm going to talk about that. But prepares us by calling for us to live lives of humble repentance. Repentance. Now, John the Baptist is the character here. John the Baptist is the one who's wandering around. He's the one who's talking. He's the one who's issuing the call. But we must keep in mind, this is not John's message. John exists by, by the very careful, sovereign, determining will of God who, who birthed him miraculously. We read about that in chapters 1 and 2. And brought him along. God's hand has been upon him. And it was God's word that came to him here. So what's coming out of John's mouth are John's words indeed. But it is God. So we really could say God calls us. And God proclaims to us the message of verse 3. It is God who's calling out about this baptism. Well, what is this baptism about then? called a baptism of repentance. And from looking at what the other Gospels say about it, we know that this was a, a singular event in a person's life. It was thoughtful, contemplated, and decisive. 
So not like the ritual washings of the temple or involving the sacrifices where they would go wash themselves with water at certain times and on certain days with regularity in association with certain sacrifices or when some certain thing had been done or was about to be done. Ritualistic washing. This isn't that. This is different. It's very thoughtful and it's decisive. It's a turning. That's what's behind the word repentance. A turning. Not constantly, but a reorientation. It's a baptism that showed repentance, but it's not about any specific sin or behavior. Now, as we'll see next week, he does indeed come around to applying this, given repentance. Now, what would be in keeping with that? What would match that? What would be appropriate for that? Then we'll talk about some specifics, but it's not that first. There's a general first, a general non-specific reorientation, turning. An orientation change that begins in the heart as we turn, admitting and affirming in some way or another, this way was not right. This way that I was is, is off. It's wrong. And I'm going to turn. First, decisively in here. So this baptism is a, is a one-time visible public display of something that I am, I am committing to in here. Difference. A baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. Which, careful, does not mean that the baptism itself causes the forgiveness of sins. Might sound like that. But really what's being said is something like, if I were to say to somebody, turn around and go back to the hospital for healing. I don't mean that the turning heals. I don't mean that the trip to the hospital heals. Turn around and go back to the hospital for healing does not even mean that entering into the hospital heals. There may be doctors, surgeons, therapists, procedures, medications, etc. Who knows? We don't have any idea yet, but what we're saying is that healing doesn't happen here. You've given up on the hospital. You've sought healing here. That doesn't work. Turn around. Go back to the hospital for healing. Turn. Repent. Go back for the forgiveness of sins. Where I am right now, I can't find forgiveness. Change has to happen. In this moment, I stand not forgiven. In this moment, I stand wrong, off, incorrect, separated in some way from what is right. And God, through John, calls people, turn. Reorient. In here. Think it through. Be different. Now they don't know, in fact, John doesn't know, what all this salvation, forgiveness of sins looks like. He doesn't understand that yet himself. So he isn't calling them exactly to Christ crucified. He's not saying, place your faith in Christ crucified. He doesn't understand that. 
but he's calling the people to some change in here that says, I am away and I am turning back. All the connections with Isaiah 40 should give us some perspective, the larger context here. I am away in a chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah's sense. I have walked, I have drifted, I have separated from this Lord, and I must turn back and seek somehow from him forgiveness. I don't know where, I don't know what it looks like, but a turn is called for back to God. If you want to put a word on that, you might call it surrender. You might also call it submission. You might call it contrition. You might call it humility. He calls it repentance. All those words, they all fit together. Trying to capture a heart attitude that God, through John, God is speaking to this people and to us saying, turn to me. Humble, thoughtfully, come. It's a turn from, I'm okay, I have life under control, I'm a decent person who does a sufficient job of obeying God. What I need from God really is some provision for my life, some of this good life that he promised in Isaiah 40, some of this kingdom to come. I need him to pour out on me the blessings of of his kingdom, prosperity and health and strength and vitality, community. That's what I need. It's a turning from that to, for starters, I am a sinner who stands in need of forgiveness. And then on top of that, I am a person who stands in need of everything. Everything. I stand in need of God in every moment for everything in my life. A posture that is lowly, a posture of contrition, of submission, of surrender, of reorientation from how we so often, and, and people of God, I, I am I'm doing my best here. I, I hope it is succeeding. I am doing my best here not to, to beat you in some way, but to press on you. It is so common that we so consistently live life under the impression that we're basically okay. We need a little bit of God kind of like salt to flavor life or like sugar to sweeten it. But essentially, not bad. We are broken in in every conceivable way and fallen and weak in the need of every... the, The breath that we draw in this next moment is given by God in every way. Our our appropriate posture before him is one of lowliness. Apart from him, I can do nothing. You can do nothing. Holistic brokenness, contrition, that is the person that is prepared to receive from God and to enjoy the salvation of God. 
where I'm going in a, mo in a moment. That's the person who has been prepared to receive and then to continually enjoy the consolation, the comfort of the kingdom. An old saint once said that all of the Christian life is repentance. We so often think of, I come into the Christian life by repenting, and then I repent when I mess up, when I sin. Well, yeah, that's true. But all of life, he means it in the sense that I'm talking about this now, all of life is a life of repentance. A life of lowliness and contrition before God. A life posture before him that acknowledges I am not right and I am not okay and I am not what I am supposed to be what you, Lord, want me to be, even what I want me to be. I fall short. I am a sinner. I fail in this way and in that way in every way all day long here. That attitude of humility, of, of contrition, of lowliness, of need, it is honest, it is realistic, it is appropriate. It is not, if we hold on to it properly, it is not self-loathing and it is not demeaning and it is not negative and it is not a downer and it is not condemning. It's just true. We must learn to live all of life repentant and not morose. Contrite, not pessimistic. To live honestly, humbly, strongly grasping 1 John 1, 9, Romans 8, 1. If I confess my sin, he forgives it. There is no condemnation on me. A humble, contrite, lowly attitude that holds on to those verses and says, no condemnation, I'm forgiven. So here's what I mean. Consider something that God requires of you. Think through something. I'm going to pick some things that are light and, and delightful. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Three commands. That in case we weren't clear about the commands, it's kind of underlined at the end, this is God's will for you in Christ. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, which I didn't do yesterday, nor Friday, nor Thursday, nor Wednesday, nor ever. Not one day since I have been in Christ Jesus have I rejoiced always and given thanks for everything. Not once. Nor have you. I'm one great big failure. And so are you. And I picked easy ones, things we should want. We should want to rejoice always, right? Can't even do that. Woe is me. And woe is you. 
This is what God requires of it. It is his will for us in Christ, and we can't even rejoice always, let alone some things that are a little more difficult or distasteful. And right here, there's a fork in the road for you, Christian. There's a fork in the road. You have an important decision to make. Do you believe the gospel or not? Because if you don't, condemnation will roll in on you like waves of the ocean. And everything that I just said will produce in you loathing and self-loathing and guilt and shame, maybe anger and frustration to me, and heavy guilt will fall on you. I don't do this on Saturday or Friday or Thursday or ever. A failure, a sinner. And with that kind of volume and that kind of drive, those words come at you. And you almost certainly will not rejoice more. It'll drive you further into despair and further into frustration and further into hopelessness and further into emptiness. And you might even grow in anger towards God that it requires something that's so hard of you if the gospel isn't true. But on the other branch off that fork, the gospel is true. And I am a failure and I am a sinner and Christ is a savior of failures and sinners like me. And in the acknowledgement of I am a failure and I am a sinner, in that lowly contrition, honest assessment of myself, I see Christ as Savior of me. Of you, failure and sinner, you. And I, I reckon and I believe there is therefore now no condemnation on those like me who are in Christ. And it is gloriously true. And you, as you realize that Christ as a treasured possession becomes beautiful. So then someone may say, well, then why bother thinking about all the sin? If, if the goal is just to be, just to have Christ seem beautiful and a glorious Savior, why? Because he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said that. The way up to a glorious experience of the love and of the deliverance of God is actually down to see yourself honestly. And then you see him marvelously. You don't go looking, looking, looking under every rock for your soul, under your soul to find out every little sin. As you read the Bible and as you get to know God, you will see more of your sin. What I'm saying is that when you see it, see it. When you're confronted with it, you look at it and you acknowledge it and you confess it humbly and realistically and honestly. Lord, I am not what I am to be. I am not what you want me to be. I'm not what I want to be. I, I see your commands and I, and I see the goodness in them and, and I have good intentions, but I constantly fail. And I am challenged so often and complaint and hopelessness marks my way. I need your grace to forgive me. And you say, thank you for that. And I need your grace to work on me and make me new, make me into the pure, spotless bride that I want to be, that you want me to be. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. It's a repentance, in a reorientation of all of your life that looks to him for the forgiveness of sin and for everything else, for absolutely everything else. And in that repentant attitude, in that honest, humble admitting of your weakness and your failure and your need, that's where you find God speaking over you the words of Isaiah 57, 14 and 15. Build up, build up, prepare the way. 
echoes of our passage. Prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way like high view of self, like a sense of I am okay. No, no, no. Remove that obstacle. Clear it out of the way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The way to revival is the way to, into contrition and humility and a, a, a sense of your utter need and helplessness before God and of his great determination. This high and lofty God is determined to dwell not only in the heavenlies, but also in you, with you. To come and be and to commune with. He forgives and he draws near and he gives himself to you. I will dwell with you, he says. People of God. I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. This is, this is that's probably good. This is, this is the heart of the next point. What the salvation of God is about is the, is the giving of God to us. I will dwell with you, contrite one. Why does God want to prepare you by calling you to contrition? I will dwell with you, contrite one. Why does he want you to contrite? To get you down and grind you and beat on you and make you see how little you are. No, so that he can come dwell with you and be with you. Awesome. God is after you to dwell with you and he will not come in your pride but he will come in your lowliness eagerly and quickly and mightily. Because that kind of heart is a heart that says I need you. I need you for the forgiveness of my sins. I need you for life itself. Please help. And he says gladly. Here, take my yuck. Take, take this life that is a mess and needs you. Of course. Take my sin and forgive and wipe it away. Indeed. Take my emptiness and fill it up, please, happily. Take my brokenness and smooth it out. Yes. That is the God you need and you want. And you drive him away by saying, I'm basically okay. I think I got it from here. Fine. Have at it. We don't want to do that. We want him to come and to dwell with us. And the high and lofty one dwells with the one who is contrite and lowly. And that is why in grace he calls us to repent. Not of particular sins, but in general, in heart attitude, reorienting. God prepares us by calling us to live lives of humble repentance. We are forever a needy people and he is forever a sufficient God. And we find that in our need. So the second point, very briefly. Figure out what to say here exactly. Um, 
Here's the second point. Humble repentance prepares us to enjoy God's salvation in Jesus. We start by noticing something in the passage. Verse 4, the quote from Isaiah, is quoted in all the other Gospels. All three of the other Gospels have that verse in relation to John the Baptist. The other Gospels are using it to identify this is John. John's the voice in the wilderness. Luke adds in the next two verses because he's got some further purpose. Luke wants to get us all the way down to the end. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke wants to take us on beyond just John to the salvation of God, that is, to Jesus. And Luke is saying, Isaiah's voice, that's John. Isaiah's salvation, that's the one coming after John, that all shall see, that's Jesus. So if we were to look at Isaiah and see and ask the question, what is the salvation that Isaiah is picturing for the people of God, we could trace through the last half of the book four or five different places that have this kind of road analogy. And that's for a reason. The book of Isaiah has the people of God taken out of the land because of their sin, cast away from the land of promise, the blessing into exile. And at the forgiveness of the people's sin, they're going to travel back. But it wasn't just the people that traveled away. God traveled away from the people. So they got kind of two roads. People physically walking away from the physical land and God spiritually walking away from them. So the second half of the book of Isaiah is tracking the salvation of God that brings God back to the people and then God with them back into the land of promise, into the blessing. That's why he uses road analogy. But notice, verse 4 is John talking to us about what we are to do. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And 5 and 6 switches to what God's going to do what will happen when the salvation comes. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain hill made low, the crooked straight, the rough smoothed, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God is bringing salvation. We must be prepared for it, but he's bringing it. All the images of Isaiah are all designed to show, to, to depict this return to the land and, and this, this blessing of life in the land with God. But all of them, if we were to walk through them, particularly the passages that are about roads, the theme of the highway home, you find the shamed and the lowly lifted up, saved from their oppressive enemies. You find forgiveness of sin and sighing and sorrowing gone and joy in its place. And you find hunger and thirst ending and in its place fullness and satisfaction. And you find righteousness and purity and justice and no longer any crooked ways in amongst the people. But all of them really are ways of depicting this union again of God come back to the people 
God comes back. This is the salvation of God, that God who was away, God returns himself to us and comes to commune with us, to dwell with the contrite in heart. This is the salvation that has been accomplished in Jesus. Even as Isaiah 40, further down in the chapter, says, this is a marvelous passage. This is the latter half of Isaiah chapter 40. The passage calls out to us and exhorts us, Behold your God. Isaiah puts in front of the people, says, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So the Lord God comes, traveling on the road that he has prepared back to his people. And then it says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you, you hear in there, the heart of that is communion and, and gracious lording over, gracious lording over to shepherd the people, to care for sheep, a kind and merciful and gracious king over us. That's the salvation of the Lord that's been accomplished in Jesus. And that's what we find when we turn to him humble and repentant, lowly in spirit. A king who is tender, who is full of glory, and holds up himself in front of us and says, Behold me. Look at me. I come to dwell with you, to live inside of you, to walk through life leading you like a shepherd with sheep, carrying you when you are in need. This is what he has accomplished in Jesus, his salvation. And all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are humble and contrite in heart, all who are repentant in all of life with an attitude turned towards him and not away, find this gracious, shepherding king of glory. God wants to give that to you. You want that. God wants to give that to you. And that's why he calls us. Repent. In totality, turn. For your good and for his glory and his people. He prepares us with repentant hearts to enjoy his salvation, to enjoy him in Jesus. Let me pray.
Lord, I pray that you would fill in the, you'd fill in the gaps in the low places in what I said and in what was heard. You would make the necessary connections where they were missed. And I pray that you would do that, Lord, for the building up of your people, for the encouragement of your people, for the joy of your people. You offer yourself to us to dwell with us and to walk with us like a shepherd with sheep. Would you grow in us over all of our lives and in every detail of our lives, grow in us a a sense of, of neediness and a sense of dependence an actual belief that apart from you we can do nothing. Would you help us to hold that, not not in a morose way or in a a self-defeating or self-loathing way, but in a realistic way that is, is very full of hope and very thankful. That finds you day by day to be a sufficient God, a Savior of failures a filler up of low places. Spirit of God, would you do that in your people? Would you shepherd us towards wholeness, towards rest? Would you grow in us assurance of your might and of your determination to make us new? put ourselves in your hands, Lord, and cry out, help. And we say thank you that you are a great helper. We pray in thankfulness in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.